Hello again and welcome. I'm your host, Michael Peregrine. We're pleased to have you with us for another episode of Governing Health. And we're back today with part two of our fascinating conversation about the board's oversight of executive compensation and all of its board level related duties and functions. That includes such key corollary duties such as data analysis, talent recruitment and retention, and executive search. And as with part one, our guides through this conversation are, of course, our good friend Tim Cotter, Managing Director of Sullivan Cotter, the well-known human resources firm, and my longtime partner, Ralph DeYoung, who is absolutely the go-to expert on the law of executive compensation, especially with respect to the nonprofit healthcare industry. Tim, let's begin today's conversation with your views on the evolution of annual and long-term incentive plans and the extent to which they apply a greater use of discretion and inclusion of new measures. Well, I think that's really the core. The discretion is the core, and it's really a reflection of the time that we're in. So if you look at the basic structure of the incentive plans, annual or long-term, the award levels aren't changing. The participation uh, is not changing. Obviously, people are evolving uh, the measures. So you're starting to see on annual plans, uh, financial sustainability, climate impact, DE&I, deployment of new delivery models. And in the larger systems where long-term plans are now the norm, you know, a heavy focus on strategic objectives such as growth and efficiency. The problem is, is that regardless of our best plans, trying to predict the operational realities 12 months down the road, or in the case of long-term, typically three years down the road, has proven really to be pretty much uh, impossible. So if you look at what's going on, that survey I mentioned that was done in late January, two-thirds of systems indicate that business judgment and discretion are now being applied as awards are determined. The most common uh, actions are that, you know, over 50% of boards use their own judgment when determining final awards. So the idea that typically it's a more mathematical and structured process, we now have 50, over 50% using their judgment. We have 43% feeling comfortable adjusting the goals during the year or at determination based on what they felt was the environment. And nearly 40% have a discretionary component and included in the plan. I think what these argue for are, do we either need to generalize our goals, okay, or do we need to cut back on the size of our incentives and be comfortable with discretion? But clearly, if you go back pre-pandemic to now, the emerge, while the plans themselves have not changed other than the measures are evolving, the use of discretion is, uh, is now widespread across the health system industry. I want to focus on one thing that you just mentioned, Tim, and what you have just conveyed is what I'm seeing with compensation committees as well. And that's the the issue of making adjustments mid-year. I've seen a heavy use of various types of mid-year adjustments over the last couple of years. One is a recognition in the middle of a COVID surge that the goals that we put in place are just not feasible goals. And we saw in 2020 and, and somewhat in 21, abandoning goals mid-year 
and moving to a discretionary approach. Yep. So we've, we saw that. We've also seen a fair amount of mid-year budget reforecasting because of the effect of elective surgeries not being permitted in that state for a certain period of time during a COVID surge and the impact on health system budgets as a result. So there are certainly some very appropriate examples of mid-year adjustments, but there are some organizations that have considered, might be considering other types of adjustments that I think have less of a strong foundation to consider, such as the COVID is causing longer wait times in our ER and our patient satisfaction numbers are suffering as a result. And we ought to make adjustments to our patient satisfaction numbers because everybody is unhappy today with wait times and things like that. That's a more attenuated effect of COVID that I think provides less of a solid foundation for making a mid-year adjustment to the incentive goals. I think in situations like that, that it's perhaps a better approach for the committee to wait until the end of the year, assess with management the performance of the organization and of senior management in leading that organization on those goals that were in existence, look at the other things the organization accomplished in the face of very difficult and challenging circumstances, and then make an appropriate uh, decision with judgment as to what's an appropriate incentive amount uh, to provide. And that's the more common approach. Yeah, I I would agree. I would, though, ask that you give careful thought to the fact that uh, we don't think that, uh, you know, patient satisfaction or engagement stores, uh, you know, should change. I I think the environment is such, uh, and especially what it does to your staffing and especially the way the surges are occurring in certain areas. I think there's strong arguments to be made that even some of those core operational issues need some judgment as to the assessment. And part of that could come by looking at some directional information about how others are responding in this. But I agree with you. The, you're seeing it both in terms of what people are reporting as the much broader use of discretion and how, how it's playing out. And I think a related issue is that there was a time when compensation committees were uncomfortable with the notion of discretion and they're having discretion and they would express a strong preference for things to be as mechanical as possible and not to place the burden of discretion on them. I think COVID has changed that. I think committees are are much more comfortable with the notion of exercising discretion and the appropriateness of, of doing that. And I think they feel better equipped today to exercise discretion than perhaps they did in the past. Agreed. You, you know, when you guys mentioned discretion, you're starting to get onto my turf and I, my ears really pick up. Let me ask you maybe kind of an off the wall question, but I think any of our listeners who listen who were participating in the first program and, and this program this time are going to sit back and say, whoa, there's an awful lot of information that I have to process as a member of the executive company. This is a big job. We have on the one hand, boards trying to reduce the number of directors. We have on the other hand, boards trying to engage and identify truly competent directors. Do you believe that the workload of the Executive Compensation Committee argues against having its members serve on any other committees of the board? Is it 
enough to have them serve on the comp committee and nothing else? I know it's kind of a tough question and there's no one size fits all, but are we getting to that point where you're, you're an audit committee director and that's all you can be and you're executive comp director and that's all you got time to be. Tim, what do you think? You know, Michael, that's probably really beyond my, uh, my area of expertise. My observation would be that the, the counterpoint to that is in most major systems, the compensation committee contains most of the key board members. And so it's really a point where, A, you, you want their level of focus and control, but I certainly would I hate to restrict their access to, to other committees. And I would hate to make executive compensation so burdensome that they can't do anything else. So to me, the thought is, let's take a real careful look at the, at the scope and breadth of what the committee's working on. Let's uh, reduce uh, those things that are not necessary. Again, maybe looking at lower uh, level executives that it really is inappropriate. And then think carefully about how committee duties can be allocated. So maybe the human capital committee has to do more of the work uh, as it relates to focusing on uh, executive development and career pathing and so on in conjunction with the, the comp committee. But I, in my experience, the comp committee has uh, typically the, some of the strongest board members and leaders. I would hate to see them restricted only to that function, which while important, certainly isn't the core governance function. And I don't disagree with those comments at all. I think that we've spent a fair amount of time over the last couple of years uh, looking at the uh, burden on the comp committee because it is it is significant. And one of the ways in which that's been uh, right-sized somewhat is what you mentioned, Tim, and, and that is making sure they're not reviewing and approving a lot of, of, of compensation arrangements that don't rise to a level that it should take um, their time. Uh, and that's true on the physician side as well as the executive side. Uh, so making sure they're not overly burdened with arrangements that, that don't truly need to have the, the board committee level review and approval. Uh, but it's also streamlining the executive compensation philosophy, uh, the materials that they receive, taking a, having a busy board member and giving them a 300-page binder uh, with all kinds of reports that they have to review, that's just not a good use of their time, and especially if they serve on other committees as well. Uh, these are generally your, your best board members. I think that the level of thought and engagement and skill that compensation committee members uh, bring to their work is higher now than I've ever seen it in working with tax-exempt organizations and their compensation committees. I, I think that that has gotten better and better, but to saddle them with a 300-page book when more thought and preparation should go into making things more concise in a way that's perhaps closer to what a public company board would be receiving and expected uh, to go through, I think that's a, a smart way to do it. And a lot of organizations have moved in that direction. So maybe the answer is that CEOs should make it clear that they expect their general counsel and their chief human resources officer to up their game in terms of staffing the executive comp committee and assuming some of the administrative work in that regard. Well, I would agree, Michael, but I also would say that the compensation consultant may also have to up their game because there's no reason for a 300 page report even though I'm sure in my past I've done something that insane. So, 
Well, Tim, hold on for the day. Let's, let's kind of move to another topic, which I think you've, I've heard you speak about before. Talk a little bit about the holding power of executive comp programs generally and what I've heard described as the focus on a total reward strategy. Well, I think that, you know, I think as you've, as you've heard from the discussion in part one and as well of today, I mean, it's, it's two parts. It's one, we have to have a competitive uh, compensation. But secondly, you know, we have to be able to give uh, executives a reason to stay with us. And so that's, their, that's our mission. Uh, that's our culture. That is uh, our focus on their well-being and health and our focus on their personal and career development. We have to have all those come together. On the compensation side, I think what we need to look at are, to me, it's twofold. And one is a little bit more difficult than the other than our tax, uh, because of our tax laws. I do think we need to do a better job of customizing the compensation we deliver to executives. And by customizing it, you know, if somebody is, it doesn't like to drive and they're 25 miles away and they're a critical person and they're working while they're in the car, maybe I want to spend $50,000 a year on giving them a driver to bring them back and forth. Now that's going to be taxable to that person, but that might be a good customizable device. On the other hand, again, it could uh, attract some, uh, some attention. The second thing we need to look at, obviously, are our core devices. So our retention incentives, our deferred uh, compensation and supplemental uh, retirement benefits. So I think it's both. I think it's trying to make it attractive. And I think the compensation systems of yesterday may not have given a lot of thought to what the preferences of the executives are. So I think really you see some of these conjoint analyses where we reach out to try to determine the the preferences of the executive. And with a younger team, it may be very different than an older team. With the emerging executive versus our longstanding people may be very different. And I think we need to give some thought to that. I think another aspect of holding power is that it is stronger and weaker at various points in time. And one thing that committees are now doing with greater frequency is working with their compensation consultants to analyze what is our retention power, what is the holding power of our various arrangements at given points in time. A long-term incentive plan has greater holding power just before it pays out than it does at the beginning of the performance cycle. A supplemental retirement plan has greater holding power just before it becomes vested than it did when amounts were first being earned or accrued. So all of these things can be combined and mapped out to show for various executives when the holding power, when the retention power of your various arrangements is at its strongest and when is it at its weakest. And of course, the idea then is to follow up on those weak points to determine what are going to be our strategies for increasing the retention power, the glue that we have in place at those weak points. I agreed. Uh, fellas, a, a question that's kind of something I know you have dealt with for years, but I'd like you to update the uh, your thoughts a little bit. Are comparables from the for-profit companies, uh, including the PE-owned businesses, especially given how PE is a, a major force in healthcare right now, 
are they still useful references in the comp reasonableness evaluation? Well, I will say very quickly that it's not only useful, but for some positions, absolutely critical because that's where you're recruiting certain executive positions from. That's where you're going to lose those positions to. And uh, you have to recognize that the, the compensation from that industry is what you're truly competing with. It's allowed by law. It's allowed for purposes of the rebuttable presumption. And it's a practical reality to have to look to that kind of data, particularly for those positions that come from that, those industries. But I, I do think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's also a matter of affordability. I mean, there, is a, there was a major case several years ago where the uh, CEO of one of our leading health systems, not-for-profit health systems in the United States, was named as the CEO of a major health insurer. Uh, his performance in that role was outstanding. His compensation was multiple multiples of what he was making as the CEO of a not-for-profit health system. I think we reach a point where sometimes we're just going to have to let people go. That's number one. Number two, I think we have to look very carefully at the components of the deal. So when, in other words, when we look at for-profit compensation, it's heavily equity-based. Well, in an environment like we're just coming out of, that's great because everything's going up. But in a very harsh environment, that compensation isn't what it looks like on, on paper because it's, it's going to be subject to, to market variation. So we have to give thought to that. And then in PE specifically, you know, again, there's a real skill set to be a very high performing a private equity investor. I've seen a lot of healthcare executives try it and get obliterated. I also think it's the issue of putting your own money at risk, which is very different than you know, what a hospital-based or health system-based is. So I think we just have to look at it carefully. But I think as we go forward, there are going to be more points where we have to go a step beyond what we're comfortable to compete uh, with for-profit uh, and private equity uh, issues. But I think there's also going to be a point where we may have to say we just aren't going to go that far. Ralph, what do you need to see? in terms of demonstration of that for-profit comparable before you're going to say that that's that's reasonable to rely on that as a true uh, competing offer? Well, I don't know that I would ever want to rely on that all by itself. I, I I think that's where it gets really tough. I think that when a tax exempt organization, let's let's say a hospital CEO, health system CEO, is being recruited by a PE company, a tech startup, a tech venture, and has an enormous package of potential value thrown at him or her. For the health system to consider a more competitive pay package in an effort to keep that CEO, certainly the terms of that offer are an important data point, an important component of that analysis. And you'd want to see it reduced to writing. You'd want to know that it's a bona fide, legitimate offer that, if accepted, would be an enforceable contract. That it wasn't just some conversation in a hallway somewhere or some phone conversation with somebody who wasn't authorized to extend an offer of that type, that sort of thing. It's got to be more than spitballing. It has to be an actual bona fide offer. But even so, it's only one component. 
And, and there will be a risk associated to it that also has to be factored in, as Tim mentioned. I would say that it still needs to be based on the market data for your peer group, how you compare yourself to other organizations. And it's not just this one data point. I think to compare yourself to one data point, I think is a, a very a difficult prospect. Since the rebuttable presumption language that the IRS has provided says that the fact and circumstances can include offers from other organizations, I would say that that is a single data point. And if that's your sole source of reliance, I don't know that you have enough appropriate comparability data to stand firmly behind your rebuttable presumption position. Well, guys, for the last question, let me throw a little bit of a hand grenade into the room, but I think it's, a, it's something that a lot of uh, organizations are grappling with right now. As we all know, the CEOs of many large health systems are serving on outside boards. That's always been a practice. It's uh, typically been recommended and favored as an experiential exercise. And in many situations, they're receiving substantial compensation awards. We know it, we see it. That has become a little more controversial in the last couple of years. Tim, what are your thoughts about how best to deal with those uh, kinds of when the opportunity comes to serve on an outside board and and receive compensation in league with uh, the others in that organization? Well, I think several issues uh, come to mind. So the first is, you know, what's the value to the organization with that CEO getting this public company experience? And my experience has been is that most healthcare organizations are delighted that their CEO gets that kind of experience and can bring back the knowledge to help their organization. So the second issue then becomes, okay, what about either overboarding or overcapacity? So I think they have to be comfortable that one board is enough. I am most comfortable, and I think many uh, not-for-profit health system CEOs have taken this path. They take the role but they sign the compensation either back to the system or to charity. And then I think that, which I'm most in favor of, but then again, it's not my compensation I'm signing off on. And then the the last issue are the resulting conflicts of interest that arrive. And so if you're serving on a, a, you know, a pharma company and you get, you know, various lines of drugs through that company, you can say that, I can remove myself from the decision-making process, but okay. So I think, and that's why you have more than a few of our leading health systems saying, especially those with strong academic focus, that you cannot serve on a public board. Now, again, there are costs to that, but I think they're saying the conflict and reputational image issues uh, are so important. Ralph, what are you saying? I think the overboarding issue that Tim mentioned is an important one. And I think it's the tip of the spear uh, on on some other issues. I think that it's important to recognize that board service can take an extensive amount of time of the executive. And that the CEO may have to be attending those boards in another city and as part of the normal work hours and may also be on their uh, comp committee, on other committees. I think it's important to know the scope of that position 
and how much time and effort it takes and when that will be devoted to that organization and what will be the cost in terms of time and availability to this organization, the tax-exempt employer of the CEO. And ultimately, you want to make sure that if the CEO is being paid for his or her full professional time and attention for the CEO role, that that's what they are able to devote to the job. Now, that being said, there are many CEOs who sit on charitable boards and on other boards and are able to balance that really well and still devote their full professional time and attention to the tax-exempt organization where they're the CEO and can support that the compensation they receive very strongly with uh, superior performance. And I think those are the kinds of issues that the Compensation Committee just has to be aware of and is able to say that they have taken into consideration. Well, as I told a client recently, uh, while the local newspaper's investigative reporter can't subpoena the CEO's Outlook calendar, the state attorney general surely can. Well, we've just had the benefit of an outstanding perspective on the role and responsibilities of the Executive Compensation Committee from two guys who surely know what they're talking about, Tim Cotter and Ralph DeYoung. Tim and Ralph have done a fantastic job in scripting the duties, responsibilities, and expectations of today's members of the Board Executive Compensation Committee, a very important and consequential committee in the context of the Board's key functions. Thanks again for joining us for this fun and hopefully informative two-episode discussion. We hope you will join us again for future episodes of Governing Health. Be sure to subscribe to the full complimentary podcast series. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. There, you'll be able to stay up to date with all of our future issues and to re-listen to the old ones. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Peregrine, saying thanks so much for listening. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.